0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. This week, we will continue our discussion on the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with AAF President Douglas Salzegan. Doug, thanks for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, as always. Um, how was your Fourth of July weekend? Had a great 4th of July weekend, um,
1: did some traditional grilling and dinner and then, um, watched the fireworks from the roof of our condominium building, And, uh, it was a spectacular display.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, did, I pretty much did the same thing, watched it from my porch, throw on some, some burgers on the grill and had a good time. So good way. It was a good power down weekend. (laughs) um, Congress is out for the next two weeks but we know that the UI supplement is expiring on the 31st. We've talked about that on this podcast. So they have a short window once they come back to get a deal done on the next COVID-19 aid package. So I wanna go through some of the ideas being discussed um, for our listeners. Um, First, let's talk about the obvious, which is the UI supplement. Um, AAF has a good amount of research out there on the work disincentives that come with the UI supplement at the current payment level. Where do negotiations stand now, and where do you think Congress will land on this issue?
1: Well, just to refresh people's memories, the federal government for the first time provided a supplemental unemployment insurance benefit uh, to augment the state-level benefits that have always been in the UI system. And it's $600 a week, or roughly 15 bucks an hour for a 40-hour work week, which is an extraordinarily generous amount of money. as it turns out, in the calculations that Isabel Soto's done for AAF, um, this means that roughly two thirds of workers make more on UI than they would going back to their previous job. It's also true in the state local sector as well, which I'm not sure is as widely appreciated. So uh, there are employment disincentives across the board here that that need to be dealt with if we're really going to get people back to work. So uh, Congress doesn't like cliffs, so it's unlikely they'll just let it go away. And instead, uh, most of the of the the conversation revolves around a lesser amount so scale it back somehow 300 200 400 you know we we will see how the the sausage making works out um and in some cases perhaps try to do it as a percentage of the of the state ui benefits um if you do that it it varies with the wage is in the area which is probably a good idea the flat 600 is a lot more money in some places than others you could have it vary with uh, with wage levels and also with with the uh, pay on your previous job. So UI is bigger for those who had more high-paying jobs. So that's where they are, um, and that's a hundred thousand miles away from a, an agreement. So uh, the, the issue remains. It, it it will likely get settled when it has to get settled, not
0: one instant before. And stay tuned. I, I'm sure next week we will be uh, sitting here talking about this, talking about this, what what's new in the negotiations, what what's going on. So we'll, we will keep a close eye on all this. Um, where does the administration stand on this issue right now? I mean, they obviously are going to play a big role in negotiations because at the end of the day, the president has to sign this. So where do they stand?
1: Uh, Secretary Mnuchin has, has identified this as a problem. And said, you know, we, we know that we can't have this. It's got to change. That, that's as far as the, I think they've publicly gone. Um, they have said uh, politely nice things about various proposals out of the Senate, uh, particularly Rob Portman's idea of a reemployment bonus. So let's give people money if they go back to work uh, without sort of specifically saying we want that in the bill. So uh, I think they're they're basically talking quietly among all the, the parties uh, on the Hill. The parties on the Hill are all over the map and the cats need to be herded.
0: Yeah. What would be the danger of not extending this? Is there is is there a significant danger of not uh, extending something? Uh,
1: there's a danger. Uh, significance is, is hard to, to quantify. Um, uh, there has been a lot of government transfers into the household sector. So there are the checks that we heard so much about, um, but there's also these UI benefits and we've got a record number of people applying for and, and receiving UI benefits. Uh, this then represents a cliff on the transfers into the household sector. So far, those transfers have kept the household sector essentially whole. Um, in the aggregate, I can't say too much about specific households, but in the aggregate, households have $2 trillion more in the bank today than they had in February, despite the pandemic, and that's because a whole bunch of cash has gone in there. So if you're worried about traditional demand issues, like you know, do people have the wherewithal to spend? They do right now, but if you have a cliff, maybe you get worried that some people um, will not in the fall. And, that, and that's, that's what you're gonna hear from uh, economists on the left. They're concerned about an income cliff uh, coming at the end of July.
0: Okay, so obviously um, Congress is likely to include other ideas in their next aid package. So let's talk about some of those. What are, what are some of the main sticking points between the parties as they discuss the next aid package?
1: I don't know, the, the two lightning rods, um, one on the Republican side, uh, 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 Mitch McConnell's insistence that there be some sort of protection for businesses against uh, liability of lawsuits um, due to employees contracting COVID-19 and asserting it came in the workplace. You know, he wants essentially blanket protection against that. Um, for how long, you know, there, there are lots of issues associated with that. Like, even if you think it's a good idea, for how long do you want to do that? Well, maybe, maybe just during the period of the emergency declaration by the president, the minute he that removes that emergency declaration, the the protection goes away. So that that's one that's there. Democrats um, have just flatly said no way. Um, It's just said, no way we're gonna have a bill unless it's in. So you know, that's Mm -hmm. that. On the other side, it's it's how much money do you give state and local governments where where, were they asked by uh the the democrats in the the pelosi bill that went through the house but will not go forward in the in the uh senate the the amount given to the state and local governments in that is is a bit more than uh, mcconnell has indicated the price tag for the entire next piece of legislation should be so they're pretty far apart on (laughs) how much money needs to go in there so those are two big sticking points right yeah
0: so it's so what you're saying is going to be an eventful two weeks a lot's going to change and we're just going to have to follow what's going on
1: or it'll be an uneventful two weeks because we don't see what's going on but but it, right. but, but with a deadline you can be sure they will be uh, peddling pretty fast and and i think you know then there's the question of what else goes in there and mm-hmm. and and as is usually the case when people identify the last train leaving the station before congress goes away for the election everything under the sun gets mentioned as trying to ride onto this vehicle and mm-hmm. and um that usually means that you get some sort of fairly ugly process where it, something is holding it up that has nothing to do with the pandemic. Um, and then they all agree, no, none of these things are gonna happen. They throw them all off and they
0: pass a, a sort of more targeted bill. And, and that mm-hmm. would be the right outcome in my view. The, te- the typical legislative process these days. Yeah. Is like, um, What about stimulus checks? Do you think those will end up in some, in some way in the next aid package? Um, for the reasons I, I just outlined
1: um, household sector seems to be in pretty good shape from that perspective right now it seems to me that's that's not something they need to do and it might be wise to hold on to that firepower for later if it becomes necessary. As usual, when I say things like that, most likely it's going to be in there um, because you know <laughs> the president has repeatedly said he's he'll open to the idea and likes the idea of sending more checks and so that's the one place the White House has you know landed, pretty pretty forcefully and you know the uh, House Democrats aren't going to oppose that. You're going to have some reservations by Senate Republicans on budgetary and other grounds uh, but, but I my guess is something ends up in there.
0: Um, so you've also talked a lot about um, one of the big issues of reopening the economy is safe workplaces um, and you've made the point um, that we have to start thinking about how we operate the economy in the face of this virus. Um, several news outlets have picked up one of your ideas, and that's to offer tax credits to offset um, the employer's cost um, to make the work- workplace safe. Um, I even saw uh, Congressman Kevin Brady discussing this idea, and um, you've sent out some tweets about it as well. What is your thinking behind this proposal? So this goes back to my experience
1: uh, at the White House and the Congressional Budget Office after the terrorist attacks of uh, 2001. Um in the aftermath of those attacks, uh, we got disappointing economic performance. And uh, even though Congress passed stimulus, traditional stimulus in 2002, 2003, 2005, and ultimately 2008, they sent out checks. Um, and in in retrospect, it seemed to me that one of the things that happened was every business in America was trying to make themselves safe against the threat of terrorism. and And indeed, the, and the country as a whole was. We set up the TSA to make sure people got screaming before they got on planes. We set up procedures to inspect every cargo container coming into the US, which was very expensive and not previously had ever been done. We put bollards around every building. Like now you can't go build around buildings without seeing bollards and, and, and a whole variety of other things. And so we spent an enormous amount of money on the safety mission. It was expensive for businesses. That expense um, came uh, instead of hiring. And and instead of investing in faster uh, growth through more productive investments, seems to me we could run into the same thing again. Now we have a threat, and the threat makes our workplaces unsafe, and you have to find a way to make your workplace safe, or you can't get the workers to come back. And that will be an expensive proposition. So mm-hmm. if you think, uh, you know, a, a bodega in Brooklyn, which is everyone's favorite example, it's unlikely that they are going to be able to completely, re, you know, revamp their store. So they're going to have to come up with a bunch of PPE. To protect their workers and and sterilize all the time and and that'll be an expense for them not something they wouldn't normally do or or airflow will be a big deal so Mm -hmm. gotta buy big fans or change your your hvac whatever it may be um bigger uh, companies are going to spend money on the physical workplaces like spreading out desks um moving production lines running more shifts with half the people all these things are expensive and um uh if you do nothing you raise the cost of doing business. Um, that's typically bad for for the pace of growth. It's going to inhibit their capacity to hire people back and or or add new people. And so my idea is, to the extent possible, can you offset legitimate reconfiguration expenses and protection expenses through some sort of, in this case, a tax credit um, that you use against your your uh, payroll taxes. So instead of sending some money into the treasury for payroll tax you use that to to cover these costs that lowers the cost of adjusting to this this way of doing business and it makes it more likely we can get people back quicker that that's mm-hmm. the idea
0: yeah i mean i've seen a lot of uh some of the essential um businesses out there like your grocery store and things like that already take steps to to sort of prevent this which to to, to make the workplace safe which is you know, making sure like every other register is being used or having like the, 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 the shield, the plexi shields in place to make sure that people aren't. Um, so I imagine it'll be a lot of that at a, depending on um, what your business is and what, what you need to do to get employees back.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's, and so it's, you know, how big it would be, not obvious to me. Could be, could be actually a pretty big um, uh, price tag on that. And from the perspective of sort of thinking of the bipartisanship, what that also means is somebody's getting paid to do that. So this is actually a big stimulus for particular sectors of the economy, suppliers of those um, those goods and services, construction, you know, installation people, things like that. So mm-hmm. that those are places where it would be
0: appealing to get people back to work as well. Mm-hmm. So obviously, with um, as we mentioned, you know, Congressman Kevin Brady was already talking about it. What do you think the uh, the appetite is for something like this on Capitol Hill? I think in isolation, it's um,
1: probably not popular enough to make it over the finish line. But as part of a larger package, um, there's there's some chance it'll, it'll be included. I, it, it's not the way most people think about the problem, right? Mm-hmm. They, they think about this as just got to have demands, got to give people checks and, and all that. And they think of the safety issue as exclusively getting a a vaccine. Um, I, I think it's I think it's just more realistic to imagine the middle ground where you don't have the vaccine, you still have to do business.
0: Fair enough. Um, so turning to another issue, what about um, we sort of started talking about this earlier, but what about the federal aid to state and local governments? Um, there's been a ton of news this week from state and local governments saying that they're going to have to make big budget cuts unless they receive federal aid, just because they're not getting in the revenue that they that they need to make their obligations. Where do you think Congress will come down on this? I don't
1: know what the number is, and I'll be honest about that. Um, we know from a piece I did a little while back, I just went and looked at the employment declines in the state and local sector. And... Um, you know, they've really been quite dramatic. They've been more rapid and bigger than they were in 2008, like everything is now. Um, and that was, you know, back in in April. Right? You know, this it happened fast. So if now they're running out of money, um, they, you know, they they got to put it off by laying some people off and probably save some money in in between. So I think there's no question their revenues have gone away like everyone else's have, and and they're going to face budgetary difficulties. I don't think there's any question about that. The question is, how do you gauge the magnitudes? And you know, I've seen things from you know two trillion dollars down to three hundred fifty billion. So the the range seems quite wide right now. And um, you know, I had always wondered how much of this problem could be dealt with by using the Federal Reserve's municipal liquidity facility and and, and taking loans out to cover the revenue shortfall, which you would pay back in, in better times. Uh, those loans have you know four year lives. Um, doesn't look like there's a lot of appetite for that we haven't seen a big move there so they're,
0: they're counting on Congress writing them a check mm-hmm. what do you see as some of the big problems here i mean what are some of the big problems with the federal uh with the federal bailout of state and local governments
1: so there they're, they're just really three different kinds of problems that that states have and uh one is uh, additional costs they face because of the the covid nineteen pandemic you know emts and first responders and the health uh, sector costs and all that, that, that's real and, and uh, is straining their budgets. The second is the revenues have gone away. That's a very real issue and straining their budgets. And, and those are legitimate places for Congress to step in and, and decide how much it wants to help. And then the third, which is the, the, what makes this issue complicated is there are states who are in trouble because they have put themselves in trouble even prior to the pandemic. And they have pension plans that are underfunded and they have other sort of structural problems with their budget. And th- there's agreement, I think, that this is not the time and place for the federal government to fix that if there ever is going to be one. Probably shouldn't be. Um, but where do you err? And, you know, some people want to err on the side of generosity and run the risk of actually, in part, subsidizing those structural problems. Others are like, no, that's not going to happen. I want to make sure we don't. And so they they're going to be less generous. So that, that's that's the pull in this one. pulls one direction
0: mm-hmm. every day um what what else should we be paying attention to that may or will be in the next package oh i
1: i think the, those are the big ones i mean you're, you you got checks you have liability you have state and local governments um you know they, there may be some other things in there uh, mm-hmm. in the in the ui piece but right? those are those are the big uh, moving pieces and the rest is all smaller ball stuff you know i have things i think might be important um but you know uh, I, I think that's gonna be part of the legislative process, just how, how much you can
0: get through. Mm-hmm. Turning to uh, something we got last week, which is of course the uh, June job uh, report numbers. Um, what do these numbers tell us about the economic recovery?
1: Well, I think they, they, they tell us really good news. I mean, you know, millions and millions of people getting jobs, um, you know, when we got the, the 20 million job loss in April and, and was, you know, just a, a mind blowing experience, you'll remember that 18 million were identified as temporary layoffs. And what I think we learned in the combined May and June reports is that, yeah, there are a lot of people out there who could readily come back if conditions quickly improved and they did. And so that's that's the good news. That's the low hanging fruit. The more we can do of that, the better, uh, even with, you know, um, you know, millions and millions of people back, we were still well below where we were in February, and so you know, we have a long way to go still. So that that I think that that was all quite favorable. Um, that report was um, uh, done during the week where it that contains June 12th, and so it was early in the in the month. And in the second half of June, we got the flare-ups and the regional lockdowns, and, and so the real issue is what kind of risks do we face in the July report? Will we see slower improvements or or, or not? And um, so everyone's looking toward that with some uh, interest. A second report came out just uh, this past Tuesday, which is called the, the JOLTS report, uh, the Job Opening and Labor Turnover Survey, uh, JOLTS. And um, what we found in that was in June, uh, the 1.8 million people lost their jobs. So there, there were, And that, as it turns out, is roughly the level we had in January and February. So we're back to the normal level of sort of turnover in the labor market. There's always... Jobs being created, jobs being destroyed. We get, you know, um, uh, four or five million uh, sort of transitions every month, and and we were back to that. So that's good news. We're not destroying jobs anymore at the pace we were certainly in in, in March and April, where jobs were getting killed at at extraordinary rates.
0: Mm-hmm. Certain states are pulling back um, on reopening the economy. Um, I saw yesterday that unfortunately a couple of uh chains had to had to file for bankruptcy how might some of those issues play a negative role in our economic recovery um have we seen any of the troubling numbers on this front yet
1: well i I think what we are seeing pretty clearly is um targeted lockdowns we haven't had broad stay at home orders we've said you know bars probably not a good idea let's close the bars um let's close the beaches. Let's sort of, sort of dial back the capacity for in restaurant eating and stay outside, or you know, um, and, and those. That tells me that it it is to be expected that the economy will not all recover at the same rate. Leisure and hospitality will recover at a at a slower rate. Airlines are going to re- recover at a slower rate. Um, you know, that's 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 going to be what we see over the next year. Um, that's not good news if you're in that sector, that's for sure. And it, and it also says that we are likely uh, to have a, a different economy in 2021 than we had at the beginning of 2020. It's going to have a smaller footprint in those areas, a bigger footprint elsewhere. Streaming services are going to be bigger. Delivery services are going to be bigger. We've already seen that. It's going to continue unlikely uh, otherwise. And so that's a traditional um, event during a recession and recovery. So you reshape the economy to, to –
0: for the future and we'll see that. And yeah. so the lockdowns accelerated on that to, to your point on streaming services just as on the side I saw um I think it was you know over the past couple of days when Disney Plus released Hamilton that Google searches for how do I get Disney Plus went you know skyrocketed it, above all the other streaming services so you know <laughs> anecdotal evidence to your point about you know changes in the economy and how how people are looking at things but I found it very interesting
1: and and we saw, you know, Brooks Brothers file for bankruptcy. Announced they're going to file for bankruptcy. And and again, we knew that a lot of brick and mortar retail was in trouble prior to the pandemic. This accelerates it dramatically. Um, the, the the fact that it happens in the pandemic doesn't makes it no less painful. There's always some economic pain associated with these transitions, and we're we're going to witness that in the next couple of months.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So one final topic today, we saw uh, with unified agenda that the Trump administration appears to be shifting from a deregulation to a regulation um, mode. Our regulatory policy team recently noted that there have been more than 900 regulatory actions related to COVID-19, many of which have been deregulatory in nature. What are you seeing here? Uh,
1: so the unified agenda is the, the 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 plan for the regulatory authorities in, in the executive agencies. And um what the the regulation team Dan Bosch and Dan Goldbeck did was was go through what they announced they were planning to do, and look only at major regulations, those that cost 100 million or more, and then classify them into uh, or, or have an impact of 100 million or classify them into deregulatory going down or regulatory going up, and as it turns out, there are more going up than going down at this point, and so that's that's a switch from the previous three years, and. Uh, suggests one of two things: either they're running out of places where they can save money in the regulatory state, or two, they've lost their appetite for it. They're switching to other things. It's probably more the former than the latter, but you know uh, that that's where they are. Um, I think the the most important thing about the sort of big regulatory actions in the in the pandemic emergency is a lot of them are done with the emergency authorities, and so. The poster child for this is uh, improved telehealth services. Um, You know, they had the authority to do something that had never before been done, which is you could do telehealth from your home. Might seem silly, but you used to have to go to a telehealth place, which sort of defeated the purpose of telehealth. And so in the emergency, HHS said, nope, you can do it from your home. You can use a commercial streaming streaming device, whether it's Zoom or Teams or whatever it may be. You don't have to have some dedicated one. Uh, and we will pay doctors the same for telehealth as they do for an office visit. That didn't used to be the case. So telehealth has has boomed. And but the moment the pandemic passes and the emergency goes away, it, it goes back to the old regulatory regime. So, you know, you'd like to see some of these things made permanent. Uh, and and that would be a, sort of a beneficial outcome. Um, you know, it, it, in this case, it would, it would cost money because they would have to reimburse more highly. But but I still think it'd be worth it. We're getting better service out of that.
0: Yeah, you've also noted that many times ta- that the many times the administration's deregulatory actions have been one of their key s- keys to economic success, and it's yeah. often overlooked. Do you foresee that if they do switch to a more regulatory front, that that might hurt any economic recovery? Um, what do you see on the remainder of this front? Yeah, I, I guess
1: um, qualitatively. The you know the, the the switch from the Obama era, roughly a hundred billion dollars a year in regulatory costs, to the Trump era, essentially zero every year, was a dramatic change, and it had a big impact in my view on the environment for economic growth. I don't see them switching from zero or or small negatives to hundred billion. That that that's not the the game plan. The mechanisms that they have in place require them to be honest about how much cost they were willing to impose because right? they give each agency a budget. Um, this is how much cost you can impose on the private sector through your regulatory actions. This year, the way they got the deregulation is those those budgets were negative numbers or zeros. And if they have to turn around and hand out budgets that are you get a billion dollars in regulatory costs, you get two, they're going to impose across the, the government 10 to 15 billion dollars in regulatory costs. That That's still not back to... the the previous regime. And so I think the impacts will be
0: relatively modest. Fair enough. Well, Doug, thank you for uh, taking the time today. This is a good discussion. And like I said, you know, throughout the podcast, I'm sure we will be returning to some of these as, you know, an aid package takes shape and um, as we get more numbers on the economy. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.